This is a talk by Joel, titled Meditation One, Concentration, recorded at the 2003 Fall Retreat at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, we're going to review two foundational practices, meditation practices, out of which all other practices grow. So we really have to get these down. And the two are concentration and choiceless awareness. Some of you know concentration under the Buddhist name of shamatha. And a lot of you I know have taken Vipassana retreats, which is very close to what we call choiceless awareness. So those are the two Sanskrit names for these practices. But to give them a generic names, just sheer concentration and choiceless awareness. But first of all, we have to uh, get an overview of what delusion is and what is the root obstacle. And the root obstacle is ignorance. Literally, we ignore reality. We ignore the reality that is our reality and it is the fundamental reality of all things, all phenomena, of the whole cosmos. And in different traditions, it's called different things, God, Allah, Brahman, Ensof, uh, all sorts of different terms, the great Tao. But perhaps the most precise term in our language that we could use would be consciousness itself. And that's an excellent term because that's a term that we are all familiar with. We have mistaken ideas about consciousness, but it's, it doesn't sound like some wooey uh, other reality. And it also doesn't carry a lot of theological baggage. And the trouble is, our attention is constantly distracted from this consciousness. We keep skipping over it. Literally, we ignore it. Our attention moves from this thing to that thing to that thing to that thing. And it never comes to recognize what is the basis of that very attention. And the main thing that distracts our attention is the delusion of self. So what is the delusion of self? A very quick, very quick overview. The delusion of self begins with an act of reified imagination. Our imaginations draw a boundary that separates us from the world. I from other, self from world, subject from object. And then in that division, we have the fundamental creation of this duality, this dualistic perception of everything based on that. And then as human beings, what we do is we draw a boundary around this set of phenomena that we call a body-mind. Is actually, there's no such thing as a solid body-mind there, but this set of phenomena desires, aversions, thoughts, sensations, and so forth that arises in consciousness. And we say, ah, that is who I am. So first of all, we just have this I and other, but now we identify this I with one particular set of phenomena. And in identifying with one particular set of phenomena, we, we identify with this body, minds, desires, and aversions. And then as we grow up, uh, we learn 
a whole slew of other socially constructed boundaries having to do with our families, our kinship relations, our class, our nationality, and whatnot, all determined by our culture. And based on this, we start to create this identity, not just this primitive sense of self, body, mind, but this quite sophisticated, complex sense of self with a history and with all sorts of allegiances and whatnot. We locate ourselves in this social fabric. And then, based on this history as we grow up, we start to develop these conditioned patterns of thinking, desire, aversion, behavior, and so forth, based on conditioned likes and dislikes. And we start responding to our environment, everything in our environment, from the smallest phenomena to great big things, based on getting what we like and avoiding what we don't like. So this becomes the whole strategy of our lives, and this becomes the story of I, as I call it. And we can see this story. There's nothing mysterious about this. You just have to tune in to your own mind, and you'll see the story of I unfolding. What I want, what I don't want. Am I going to get this? Am I, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to put it with that. Da, 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 da. All day long it goes on. And this absorbs our attention, and it is very much like a mental soap opera. And my father used to write for uh, these radio soap operas back in the 40s and 50s. And uh, there was one called The Life of Helen Trent, I think it was. Does anybody remember that? Are you? Uh, yeah, okay. And every, uh, at the end of the show or the beginning of the show would say, will Helen Trent find happiness with so-and-so? Tune in next week. And this is how our minds are, but they're tuning in next moment, next moment, next moment. You know, we're totally absorbed in this. This is keeping our attention glued to this mental drama. That is the fundamental problem here. So, uh, concentration practice is designed to still attention so it becomes stable and undistracted. That's the key word there. Not distracted. Here's what the Hindu mystic Anandamoyama says about it. As if by compulsion, the mind runs after the gratification of desires that bring suffering. The mind has become uncontrollable by the repetition of a divine name or mantra and by meditation, this illness can be cured. It's very simple. It's just something that everybody who's ever tried to walk a spiritual path has noticed that Whenever you try to still the mind, it runs off, it gets involved in stories and so forth. Here's how the Tibetan Buddhist Lati Rinpoche describes it. Setting the mind on an object is likened to tying an elephant to a post. The rope symbolizes mindfulness. The post symbolizes the object of observation. The elephant symbolizes one's mind. So it doesn't really matter what this object is, as uh, Nandamoyama said. It could be a mantra, it could be a divine name, it could be the breath, it could be a visualization. That is objectively irrelevant. It may be very relevant to you subjectively. You may find it's much easier to concentrate on one thing than another. Here's the uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian mystic Theophane the Recluse. Thoughts jostle one another like swarming gnats and emotions follow on the thoughts. 
in order to make their thought hold to one thing, the fathers used to accustom themselves to the continual repetition of a short prayer. So here we have quotes from three different traditions. And if you look into Islam, you'll find the Sufis have a practice called dhikr, which is the concentration on a divine name or a short phrase. And you'll find this is in the Jewish Kabbalist tradition. They talk about practices of prayer where you pray with undistracted attention and you direct the attention to God and usually using a divine name. So it's the same in all these traditions. Everybody's noticed the same thing and everybody begins with training this attention to be still. Let me put a caveat here. Perhaps you don't need to train your attention to be still. Perhaps for one reason or another, you have the natural ability to just sit down for 10 minutes and focus your attention on anything, and it won't be distracted for 10 minutes. If you can do that, you don't need any training. And you can test this out for yourself. If you find you can't do that, you need to train the attention. You need to train the attention to be undistracted. If you don't do that, you cannot do the advanced practices of the path in any tradition. You just can't do them. And I want to read you an example that's very pertinent today. This is from a Tibetan Buddhist named Tsukne Rinpoche. And he's talking about Dzogchen, which is a meditation practice that is taught in the Tibetan traditions, considered the highest. And it's become quite popular, and lots of people run off to Dzogchen retreats, and the people who are teaching Dzogchen today, a lot of them, not all of them, uh, teach it in a in a very superficial way. And they say, oh, don't meditate. The meditation is a distraction. Just sit there and relax and enjoy your true nature and la-di-da-di-da. Well, here's what Sukne Rinpoche says, who was trained in the old Tibetan tradition. In genuine Dzogchen training, we need to let go of the notion of meditating. But if one simply gives up meditating and becomes like any other ordinary person, that's no use at all. One needs to have no sense of meditating and yet to be totally undistracted at the same time. That's why we're starting with our concentration practice. We want to be able to have attention, be able to focus on one thing without distraction. When we concentrate, this leads to a state that's known in the Buddhist tradition as calm abiding. It's a state that is characterized by two qualities. And the two qualities are stability of attention and clarity. Clarity of awareness. And it's very important to have both these qualities. Here's what Lati Rinpoche says about calm abiding. The mind is like a mountain able to abide firmly and steadily on the object. The meditator has great clarity and feels that he or she could count the particles in a wall. So there's this sense of the steadiness of attention. It's not following thoughts or other phenomena. It's very steady and it's very clear. It's not dull, spaced out. You know exactly where you are in the sense that awareness of what is going on, that clarity of attention. This is what the Buddhists call a serviceable mind, and this gives you the opportunity for insight.
If there's no clarity in there, there's no opportunity for insight. So, first of all, I thought maybe I'd say a few words about posture. Posture is actually very important. In the East, of course, the classic posture is the full lotus with one foot drawn up over the opposite thigh and the other foot drawn up across it on that thigh. And I guess if you grow up that way, it's not too hard to get into. In our culture, we don't grow up that way, so many people find it very difficult to sit in. If you are young and limber, however, it is actually a very stable posture. And I would encourage anybody who's young and limber to spend the time getting used to it. At least get used to, if you can, the semi-lotus posture, which is only one foot drawn up over one thigh and the other foot tucked under the other thigh or under your buttocks, which is also a very stable posture, especially if you are sitting on a firm cushion. You can end up sitting for hours after a while and not get tired, not be falling over, not be slouching and so forth. So uh, these are the classic Eastern postures. Other traditions have other postures. If you read through the Christian uh, Orthodox tradition, the monks on Mount Athos uh, apparently sat on little three-legged stools or something and placed their chins on their chest. In the Islamic tradition, the various Sufi orders have different postures they recommend for doing zikr or uh, meditation and so forth. In some schools, they set their arms in such a way as to form Arabic letters, like the A of Allah and so forth. And also, if you are chanting zikr, there are various head movements that you do that go along with the chanting that also have a symbolic value, that are negation and affirmation and things like that. So in these traditions, over time, these postures get formalized and worked out. And then sometimes you'll run into disputes about which is the best posture and so forth. And again, it's just like the object of meditation. There is no objectively best posture. There's the best posture for you. But there are certain principles of posture that are very important. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So even if you are not so young and not so limber, as a lot of us here are anymore, and you are sitting in a chair or on a stool or something like that, the principles are what you really want to pay attention to. And the first thing is to sit in an upright but not rigid position. And the key here is the spine, the position of the spine, really. You want to get your spine as straight as possible. But once it's straight, you don't want any rigidity or any muscular effort in holding it that way. That's why it's nice if you have a straight back chair rather than those rounded back chairs. It's much easier to do that. Then you want to line up your head and you can drop your chin a little bit so that your gaze is aimed downward slightly. And once you're in that kind of posture, you want to totally relax the muscles of the body. So the skeleton is holding it up, and the skeleton's holding it up just by virtue of the fact it is a skeleton, not because there's any extra effort there. Then the whole body should be relaxed on that, all the muscles. And it is a very good idea before starting a meditation just to do a very quick little scan, a body scan, and just see if there isn't some tension there that you become aware of that you can release. There are meditations where you do a very thorough body scan and go through inch by inch. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just talking about a quickie. 
And very often you'll find some tension you're holding in your jaw, or your forehead, or you're squinting, and, and you can just notice it and just oh, let it go. Just let it go, let it go, let it go. And this posture is very relaxed, but it's also very alert. And that's what we are trying to strive for inwardly in terms of attention. Relaxed, but alert. So the outer posture is reflecting that. And then, just as we don't want our attention to be roaming around, we want to find ways to anchor our limbs. The feet can be firmly planted on the floor. You can cross them slightly if you're sitting in a chair. Uh, you want to find some place to put your hands, either on your thighs, palms down, palms up. You can use various little mudras. You can fold your hands in your lap. Uh, with your thumbs together, resting one back of the hand on top of the palm, and so forth. And you can do a little experiment in the beginning to find the right posture that's right for you. But once you have found that, always come back to the same posture. Unless you're doing some kind of meditation that requires a different posture. Always come back. That way it's never a distraction. It's never a question. What should I be doing? If you take the time and pay attention in the beginning to sit in that posture that you have found is the most comfortable, erect, and alert, and relaxed for you, then every time you come back to that. And then the body can be very still, and you can forget about it. It won't be a distraction for you. For this kind of concentration practice that we are doing this morning, we want to make sure that the eyes are open and you allow the gaze to fall somewhere comfortably in front of you, it's just like you're setting your hand someplace on your thighs or in your lap so that the gaze doesn't move around. You are not looking at some spot or anything out in front of you. You are just setting your gaze there. But all your attention then is going to go to your meditation object. And the reason to keep the eyes open, even though... Uh, in the beginning, you can get more powerful concentration with the eyes closed. Most people can. There's no question about it. There are two faults with that. They're relative faults. One is that you also tend to have more problem with thoughts. Thoughts become more vivid, and sleepiness can become a greater problem if you are prone to that. But more importantly for our purposes, as we will see uh, later, we are going to use this concentration practice to launch into a choiceless awareness practice where we definitely need our eyes open. So the transition is much smoother if we've gotten used to meditating from the get-go with our eyes open. So the point about posture is that it is important in preparation to actually get to our main practice, which is training our attention to focus on some object without distraction. So the actual concentration practice, the actual practice, requires the four principles that govern all practices on a spiritual path and the path as a whole. Attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. So the first is to pay attention. So what is attention here? And what is the difference between attention and thought or mind or all those other kinds of terms? Attention is quite specific. We might say attention is the power of awareness to focus. It can either focus very narrowly or it can focus in a more relaxed way. 
It's different from thought, for instance. Attention can be focused on thought, but it can also be focused on something else. So it's not thought itself. One of the uh, analogies I like, most of you heard before, is that attention is like a, a theater light. It can either be narrowed down into a spotlight that focuses on one object on a stage, like someone sitting on a stool, or it can be opened up like a floodlight, so it illuminates the entire stage and all the objects on the stage. It has that range. In the concentration practice, we're trying to make it into a spotlight focusing on one object. That doesn't mean that there aren't other things on the stage. And that doesn't mean other things aren't moving around on the stage. And that doesn't mean you won't be aware at the periphery of attention that things are moving around. But the attention is staying on that stool, let's say. And something else is over here. It doesn't just jump over here to see what's going on. No, it just stays on that stool. Pay attention. Pay attention to the breath in detail. You can watch the breath goes out, turns around, comes in, turns around, goes out. If you find yourself drifting a little bit or whatever, go back to that detail of watching the breath. Remember that. Then you need to make a commitment. You need to make a commitment not only just to do this practice on a regular basis, because it won't help you to do it just once in a while, but you need to make a commitment within the session that you're practicing. Because you're going to get bored. And you're going to get fascinated by some thoughts. Or all sorts of things might happen. And so you need that sense of a commitment coming back to the practice, coming back to the practice, coming back to the practice. Then you need to practice detachment from all phenomena that might distract you, but most importantly from thoughts. Those are the things that really carry us away. And it is very important to realize that detachment does not mean trying to suppress thoughts. Detachment has, in a spiritual context, a very technical meaning. It means neither grasping at or pushing away anything. And grasping at or pushing away is really a movement of attention that gets fascinated by something and starts to follow it or doesn't like it and tries to reject it. It doesn't have to involve any sort of physical motion whatsoever. Detachment is simply just ignoring. It's letting it be. Don't touch it. If a thought arises, fine. Raindrop, sounds, sights, whatever. Your job is not to worry about all that. It's just to stay on the object. So if you get distracted, then you need to practice detachment. And detachment simply means, oh, you recognize I've been distracted and you let go of whatever it is that's distracted you and you gently but firmly bring the attention back to the object. And then finally, you need to practice surrender. And surrender is the subtlest of these principles, the most difficult to describe. But it really means giving yourself wholeheartedly to the practice. Allowing the practice to guide you. 
surrendering to the practice without any specific expectation of what it should do, without making judgments about the practice or demands on the practice. And then, as the Buddhists say, if you turn Dharma, Dharma turns you. If you turn the wheel of Dharma, the practice, that is, you need to put in some initial effort into the practice, but then you surrender to it, and it will reveal to you what it has to reveal. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to be anxiously waiting for something to happen. If you are in a bhakti tradition, you think of this as surrendering to the grace of the divine, of the guru, of whatever. This is how the grace is going to operate through the practice. So you just let go. You do the practice. You show up. And that's really what the practice is doing. It's making ourselves available for insight, for wisdom, for love and compassion. And then that's all we have to do. Then we just surrender. Let the practice take you where it's going to take you. Now, in the course of a concentration practice, lots of unusual phenomena can happen to the practitioner. It's not necessarily so that it's going to happen, but it can happen. And I'm going to mention some typical ones that may or may not happen to you, but they happen to many people doing this kind of practice. And they also happen to various degrees to people doing this kind of practice. It's very common, for instance, for some people to start seeing colors flashing in their minds, unusual and strange colors. Or hear sounds, bells or harps or whatever, strange ethereal music and stuff. Or, and this is even more common, to feel a variety of kinds of sensation in the body. Some of them which can be very pronounced. Some people actually get a, a strong sense at a certain point as in the concentration practice that spiders are crawling all over their skin. So that's so bad. can tickle. You can feel like you're levitating. The body can get very light and really feel like it's weightless. At probably the most extreme end of this, some people get involuntary muscular motions, which in Sanskrit are called kriyas. Little jerks like that. You know. and sometimes they become stronger. You might notice somebody next to you is going through that. Don't worry about it. It's very common and known in all traditions. This is why the Quakers, for instance, are called Quakers. Because they used to go into barns and get in these deep meditative states, go into silence, and then they would start manifesting these involuntary quaking motions. If it happens to you, don't worry about it. It doesn't mean you're about to have an epileptic fit. Unless you happen to be an epileptic, that's a different story. But if not, don't worry about it. And all these phenomena... The advice is ignore them. Don't get fascinated by them. They are, in a certain sense, signs that the practice is working. Because when you are actually genuinely getting deeper into a concentration practice, it's going to change your body-mind. I mean, that's the whole point of it. It's not business as usual. And so it means that, yes, your concentration is getting deeper and these things are manifesting. But they themselves aren't important. The Tibetans describe this kind of unusual phenomena as a false boil. And what they mean is when you put one of these big Tibetan kettles on the fire 
after a while you get all this uh, crackling and hissing sound and all that, and it sounds like the water in the kettle was boiling. It's not really boiling yet. And if you take it off then, it's not really that hot. But if you leave it alone, then all that settles down and then a deep sound comes, and that's the genuine boil. So don't be fooled by the false boil of this unusual phenomena that can manifest. Take as your slogan, steady as she goes. Now you see, okay, this stuff is beginning to manifest, but I'm going to stick with my practice, my simple practice of placing the attention on the breath, watching the breath. When I'm distracted, bring the attention back. That's all. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's working fine. There are, however, two major faults that we do need to correct in our meditation when we detect them. And they are excitement and laxity. And excitement and laxity come in degrees. There's gross excitement, and there is gross laxity, and there's subtle excitement and subtle laxity. And we need to use introspection to check in every once in a while and see what's going on to detect any of these faults, especially in the beginning of a practice. And this is a delicate maneuver in itself, because if you're using too much introspection, you are actually interrupting the practice. You're interfering with the practice. So if you're doing it too often, that's no good. But if you don't do it at all, chances are you'll be sitting there for hours and you'll fall into one of these faults and you won't know it and you won't know how to correct it. So you have to work out the rhythm of how you apply introspection for yourself. So what are then uh, laxity and excitement? Well, this morning we'll just talk about gross excitement and gross laxity, and then this afternoon we'll talk about the subtle ones. Gross excitement is when vivid, compulsive thoughts carry you away. So maybe there's some problem that your mind is chewing on, and when you sit down to meditate, it thinks this is now time where I can really work out this problem a relationship, a new job, I don't know, you bought a house, whatever, right? And so you sit down and right away your mind starts planning or replaying old tapes, trying to figure out what went wrong or something like that. You know what you're thinking about and it's very difficult to stop thinking about that. And it's gross excitement because it carries you totally away from your meditation object rather quickly. In a few moments, you're not aware of your breath at all. You're totally wrapped up in this problem that your mind is trying to solve. So that's why it's called gross. You lose complete track of your meditation object. The tendency is to try to fight that, to put in more effort to keep that attention on the meditation object. And that actually generates more excitement. It's exactly the wrong thing to do, even though it feels like it should be the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to relax a little bit. You're making too much effort to hold the attention onto the meditation object. So you back off a little bit. You relax a little bit. The opposite fault, which is gross laxity, is when the mind drifts into a stupor that is so dull and stuporous that you lose all track of the meditation object. This is what I was describing earlier. When you get into one of those states where 
You're just in a daze and someone says to you, a penny for your thoughts, and you go, what, what? And you've lost all track of your meditation object. You've lost probably all track of where you are of everything. There are thoughts present, but they all sort of run together. You couldn't say what you were thinking about. And the cause of that is you're making too little effort. So if you detect that, you need to put in a little bit more effort into keeping attention on your meditation object. So we're moving between gross excitement, gross laxity. You need introspection. Every once in a while, just check in, make sure that you haven't fallen into either gross laxity or gross excitement. The great analogy for this is tuning a guitar string. If you tune the string too tight, the note is sharp. If it's too loose, it's flat. And what's really important about the analogy is you have to play a little bit with tuning here. Nobody can tell you exactly how to do it. Just like a musician, you know, sitting there waiting for the orchestra to start, you hear them all doing all that stuff. One advice is to start a little on the sharp side, with a little bit too much effort, because it's easier to notice that you have fallen into excitement and then to back off the effort than it is to notice that you've fallen into laxity and then increase the effort, especially gross laxity. Gross laxity is usually a state where you don't even remember to apply any introspection to find out that you're in gross laxity. You usually don't know it until the gong sounds. If you're beginning this concentration practice on the breath particularly, for the very first time, it's recommended to count your breath. And there's a technique about counting your breath. And you might want to do it for the first week or two weeks or three weeks of practice if you are doing this practice every day. And the technique is very simple. It is to count, starting with the out-breath, one, the breath goes out, turns around, comes back in. The next out-breath, two, turns around, comes back in. The next out-breath, three. Count up to ten, and then start over again. And this will give you a very quick experience of falling into the two faults of gross excitement and gross laxity. You'll find out what they are very quickly, because what will happen is, if you are having gross excitement you won't get very far on the counting. You'll get up to three or four or something, and then the mind will take you away on some fabulous trip. And then you notice that. I mean, the, the fact that you've been counting makes it very clear that something has gone wrong here. And when you notice that, you don't try to figure out where you left off, like at three or four or something. You come right back to one, and you start all over again. Counting, one to ten. If you fall into gross laxity, what will happen is you'll start to drift and you will lose track of the fact that you're counting and you'll suddenly become aware of 17, <laughs> 18. Oh. So when you experience that, again, you just come back to one and start counting again. And you want to make sure in this that you're actually counting your breath. It's very easy for the mind to latch onto the counting and forget all about the breath. 
So you want to make sure you're counting something. You're counting your breath. You're not just mindlessly counting. So this is a very good technique in the beginning of this practice to get you focused into the practice and to show you at least what gross distractions are rather quickly. After a while, uh, you want to drop the counting. As I say, it varies with individuals, maybe after three, four weeks, a month, or something like that. The counting is like training wheels on a, on a bicycle, you know. You put uh, kids just to get them started and get what it feels like to be up there, and then you take the training wheels off. But if you find yourself falling into either of these gross faults, gross excitement or gross laxity, and you're really having a hard time you know, getting the mind to come back and so forth, go back to the counting. It's a very helpful device. We never really outgrow anything in practice. We're always in some sense coming back to it all. And finally, there's no reason to practice anymore whatsoever, and yet we continue to practice for the hell of it. Okay, let's uh, take a, a P meditation and then we'll come back and we'll do some practice. So we're going to do one round of concentration practice. Begin by finding your meditation object, your breath or your mantra, and focusing your attention on it. Use introspection to check for the presence of excitement or laxity and adjust your effort accordingly. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So, are there any questions now about the actual practice here? Yes. Well, it's, um, probably the grossest laxity is if you start to get sleepy. You know, I'm really starting nodding out. Yes. And this problem with sleepiness this is a very common thing that happens to people. And then there are just commonsensical kinds of advice. I mean, get more sleep. If you can, go splash some water in your face or whatever. Uh, a couple things you can do on the spot to correct that is, first of all, raise your gaze. You don't want to be staring and you're not now shifting your attention so it's focused in the visual field. But just raising the gaze tends to brighten awareness a little bit. And the other thing you can do is, if you have a definite position for your hands, 
in the lap like that or on your knees. And when you start to get sleepy like that, you'll find that starts to fall apart. And you notice that, and then you can bring your hand back into the correct position, and the mind will clear. Just that little movement. But most people, in the beginning of practice, have some problem with sleepiness. Some people have a real strong problem with sleepiness that lasts for a long time. But most people, actually, if you do this practice consistently, you know, on a daily basis and whatever, you just get over it. It ceases to be a problem unless you've really been exhausted by something that's going on in your waking life. Yes? I have all these... uh incredibly beautiful colors show up for me. And um, the thing about it was I didn't really care because I've heard enough times, you know, don't care about that. And I I didn't, but what was interesting for me was it was just at a time when I was finally, I think, having a little bit of clarity and I wasn't paying attention to the thoughts. It was very natural and I was just letting them sort of flow by, and it's like, all this is is another thing trying to get my attention. It's, no, it's just as made up by ego as um, my thoughts are. It's just, it's just like it's just trying something else. That's exactly right. But it looked cool. That, that, that's right. That's right. This is why all the traditions warn about not falling into that trap. Every single one going back thousands of years. Because it looked cool to everybody. And the fact that you could just notice it and see it for what it is and continue the practice is great. We want to be careful here because we don't want to fall into the other trap of getting into a big battle with those things and pushing them away. That's not true detachment. True detachment, oh, their color's present. Okay, their color's present. So what? I mean, I'm going to go on with my practice. Yeah. So... If you get into a battle with those things, you just empower them. That's exactly what they want. If they can't seduce you into believing in them, then they can seduce you into fighting. And then all your energy and all your attention, everything goes into a big battle. And that's a wonderful story of I, how I am the spiritual seeker conquering all my obstacles. And, you know, that's that's a good one. Yes? Gross excitement. Um, Can you become too... Willful, that is, you're, you're becoming an agent of action when actually you're trying to just forget and, and relax. And That's right. And that comes from trying too hard, not in terms of the actual practice of putting the attention on the object, but trying too hard for the practice to do something. Do you know what I mean? And that's where the principle of surrender comes in. If you find yourself sitting there and you've been meditating, you know, for an hour or two and nothing's happening and you're saying, damn it, something should be happening now, you know, you haven't surrendered to the practice. So if you notice that, just relax. This is the surrender part, just surrendering to the practice. This is why I say the amount of effort and the amount of will that we are in a relative sense using here is very small and it's very precise. And it concerns one little arena directing attention. But that is it. Nothing more than that. You see? Just directing attention. Yes, Abel? I would like to go over stability again. Okay. Stability is simply the ability of attention to stay on the object. 
So the longer it can stay on the object without being distracted, the more stability there is. So let's say I'm doing the breath. And I breathe out, the breath turns around, it comes back in, it goes out, and I'm thinking about my trip to Hawaii. Now I've had stability for a breath and a half, you see? Okay, that's fine. Then I notice, oh, I'm thinking about my trip to Hawaii. You notice that, you gently but firmly bring the attention back to the breath. Okay, going out, comes in, goes out, comes in. What am I going to have for dinner tonight? Oh, your stability has increased. The first was only a breath and a half. Now it's two full breaths. Very good. Applaud, see? If you're really having trouble, then say, okay, stop, stop. Can I just be stable for one full breath? Set that as a little kind of goal for yourself. Oh, okay. Wasn't distracted? Good. Now, after a while, can I do it for two full breaths? Oh, I actually can do it for two full breaths. Amazing. This will build your confidence in a practice. And after a while, you'll be able to do three, four, five. And by the way, I would not set my sights too high in terms of how long you're actually going to be stable within a given session. I mean, it'd be quite remarkable if any of you achieve a stability, a calm abiding that lasts for one whole session of our sitting. So if you have a little calm abiding for a few minutes or longer, I mean, that's... That's pretty good. Be, you know, be happy with that. And it's just, you know, it's just a question of moving on, moving ahead, not clinging to anything or trying to reproduce anything. It's just continuing to be present here in the moment, doing the practice as it unfolds in the moment. And then applying the principle of surrender, letting the practice take you where the practice is going to take you, instead of you trying to direct the practice someplace. Okay, the other thing we want to pay attention to now is subtle excitement and subtle laxity. We talked this morning about gross excitement and gross laxity, and now we want to use a little introspection to check on occasionally whether we have fallen into subtle excitement or subtle laxity. Subtle excitement is when the mind is quite active, is generating a lot of thoughts. And there is now divided attention. You don't completely lose track of your meditation object. It's there, but it's been kind of pushed off to the periphery a little bit. So the difference is, instead of in gross excitement, you lose complete track of the meditation object, you know? You start meditating, and the next thing you know, you're off in Hawaii planning your trip for the middle of winter, especially it's getting cold now and rainy, and you're starting, oh boy, I can't wait, I'm going to be there on that beach. And you're gone. That's gross excitement. Subtle excitement is, yeah, Hawaii be nice. I can't really think about Hawaii. I just got to stay with this breath. Huh? Yeah, well, I can just feel that sun a little bit. But <laughs> you still got the breath going, okay? So what is the problem? Actually, the problem is, again, same thing. You're making too much effort to hold attention to the object, slightly too much effort. Now you just want to relax the effort just slightly. Relax the effort, and at the same time, you maybe want to rededicate yourself, recommit to the practice. And then you really find the object, but then you back off in the effort slightly. 
When you fall into the fault of subtle laxity, it's the same thing. The difference is, instead of losing complete track of the object, because you've drifted into a zombie-like stupor, you've become very dull. Their thoughts in the mind, they're, they're not really grabbing you. They're not really exciting. It's that dull chatter that goes on most of the time. Do you know what I mean? But you're bored with the object. So the object is there. You haven't lost complete track of it, but you're, you're sort of in between. You're kind of nowhere. And the mind has this sort of dull quality. It's not a, like a complete stupor, but a dullness. This is actually the worst of all the faults, of all four of them, subtle and gross, whatever. Because this is the most deceptive. Because it's very relaxed. It feels like there's no effort going on. You can kind of drift through hours of meditation this way. And it can actually feel like, if you don't know it, good meditation, even great meditation. But the problem is there's no clarity. There can be stability in this, but there's no clarity. And because there is no clarity, there's never be an opportunity for insight, for direct insight. So we want to be very careful not to fall into subtle laxity. And especially we want to be very careful not to mistake subtle laxity for good meditation. Because there are people who think this is great meditation, just do this for years and years. And all they're doing is making their minds duller and duller. So be really careful about this one. Again, you're not making quite enough effort. The antidote is rededicate yourself to the practice. Oh, here I'm getting a little lazy here. And then put the attention back on the breath and put a little bit more effort into holding it there. Just a little bit more effort. The other thing you can do about subtle laxity, again, as with sleepiness, you can raise your gaze. That often also helps to clear up subtle laxity. Just raise your gaze a little bit. All right. 10-minute P meditation, and we come back and apply these teachings to practice. So we're going to do one round of concentration practice. Begin by finding your meditation object and focusing your attention on it. And then use a little introspection to check whether we have fallen into subtle excitement or subtle laxity. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
Theophane the recluse says, flee from satiety. That state, when the heart says cunningly to itself, enough, I need nothing more. I've worked hard. I've established order in myself. Now I can allow myself a little rest. The direct effect of satiety is the weakening of attention and allowing of exemptions to oneself. Whoever permits this will begin to slide downhill like a man on a slippery slope. This is the danger, so watch. Now check this out in your own experience. I read you what these great mystics say. They come from all different times and places, but notice they've all been doing the same kind of practice and they all notice the same things happen to us as human beings. We are prone to these things. And you can see after a while, especially if you're getting a little, um, a little result from concentration, a little bit of pride comes in, a little bit of this feeling that I don't really have to work too much. I can just coast for a while here. I can just drift. And it's very important in a meditation practice not to become complacent about the practice and not to become mechanical in the practice. And this is particularly true if you're doing a mantra practice, by the way. It's very easy to fall into a very mechanical repetition of mantra in your mind. If you're doing a breath meditation, the same way, it's very easy to be able to sit there and just have the breath going and have uh, you know, some awareness of the breath and fall into that laxity. So we want to be very careful about not becoming mechanical and not becoming complacent about our practice. The practice will deepen if we continue to refine it. And the practice will hold our interest if we continue to refine it. Otherwise, we'll reach some plateau and it'll just stay there. And then it'll become dull very quickly. But if we develop and maintain a curiosity about the practice, about what is happening, the various little states that we're going through and how all that works, then that curiosity will keep us going in the practice and will make us want to refine the practice more and more. So this morning we want to talk about two ways to refine this concentration practice. The first way applies really if you're doing the breath. And that is we've been talking about just following the breath. Following the breath as it goes out, turns around, comes in, turns around and goes out again. And after a while, when you develop some stability with that and a little clarity, you don't have to have wait until you have full-blown calm abiding states easily, but you develop some ability, some clarity, some stability, then you can narrow that spotlight of attention down even farther and find some particular point through which the breath passes to focus on. For most people, the easiest two points are the nostrils, the sensation of the breath in the nostrils, or the rising and falling of the abdomen. Some people can feel it passing through the heart, which is very nice, especially if you have a more of a devotional kind of practice. But it should be a very precise feeling, a sensation in the heart, not a general feeling, oh, my heart's opening, and da, da, da. Because that's the point. You're, you're getting a smaller object and you're focusing that spotlight of attention down narrow and narrow on it. Another one, which is almost impossible, I find, to do if you have a mustache, 
but a lot of people report they get big success with is the sensation of the breath on the upper lip as it comes in and out. Again, this is something you can experiment with to find which works best. But once you discover which object works best for you, then stay with it. Don't be jumping around during the meditation. Oh, I can't really see it in my nostril. Maybe I'll try it in my abdomen. Nah, it's not working. I'll go back to my nostril. It's interesting how the mind can take just these little things and start playing with them and entertain itself for half an hour jumping around, you know. So watch out. Be careful of that. Uh... In a practice of concentration, we are striving for stability and clarity. And the first thing to master is stability. Here's the advice given by uh, Jen Lamrimpa, who was actually the Tibetan meditation master for whom this very retreat center was built. One thing to remember as you enter the first stages of shamatha, which is our concentration, is that at the outset, there tends to be a strong urge to get better clarity fast. Don't go for it. Be satisfied with a rather poor quality of clarity and really go for stability. The appropriate process is to start by trying to establish stability in a very gradual and gentle way. Upon that basis, clarity can then be developed. In the early stages of your practice, it may be that clarity is surprisingly good. Because the mind is so prone to attachment and excitement, you may feel the irresistible urge to go for even more clarity. It's a trap. If you follow that route, the clarity will become an obstacle. Therefore, first of all, emphasize stability. Notice, by the way, the precision with which he knows how our minds work. This is the guy I told you. He spent, I don't know, 10 years in a cave in the Himalayas before they put him on a plane and sent him over here. So I'm pointing this out as an indication of something you can start to notice in your own practice. I'm trying to inspire that kind of curiosity. I mean, after all, it's your mind, guys. I mean, you know, how does your mind work? What's it doing? What's it all about? I mean, these are interesting questions, aren't they? Yes. I find that um, you, you can meditate and you can, you know, establish a moderate amount of stability. And then uh, I find that I uh, enter a, a state of mind where thoughts may occur, but they become less relevant. Right. Somehow, but it's, it's not uh, very stable, I would say. There's a lot of noise going on. But uh, I guess you're focus of attention doesn't pay attention to them or wander Right, exactly right. There's nothing in this about stopping thought. It it, it does happen spontaneous in a practice that for periods of time thoughts may slow way down or even stop for a while. But the point of this is not to stop thought. The point of this is to not be distracted by thought. So the more that's happening to you, that is an increase in stability. The more the attention stays on the object and is not drawn away by thought, the more stability you are actually developing. Yes. I was sitting here listening, taking in your talk here, and then developing a strategy for myself, which was going to be, uh, no doubt, I'm having some kind of subtle either laxity or excitement going on 
if combining isn't going on, okay, I'll use that as my, uh, sort of my guidance. But now it seems like what you just read, the advice from the Lama, sort of warns against that kind of strategy. Is that, am I on the right track here? It's kind of like, don't, um, no, because I was thinking, oh, I'll just go for the, I'll just keep making the clarity in my goal. And he's kind of saying, uh, make sure you have really profound stability first. Yes. I think probably uh, addressing your little strategy exactly. Actually, I would even go farther and say, the clarity will naturally come out of the stability, provided it is real stability and not subtle laxity. If all the attention is on the object and it's stable, the mind will clear. And maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I'll tell you why. Because attention you can think of as a kind of energy or the relationship between attention and other phenomena in consciousness has a kind of uh, bound energy. When attention latches on to some phenomena, when attention releases that phenomena, energy is released and that energy goes back into the quality of awareness. So if attention is free of all other phenomena and is only on the breath or a mantra or your object, all that energy is available for awareness. You see what I mean? That's why it's experienced as a sudden rising up. Of, I mean, to me, it's like clarity. It's it's a, that's right. And everything's just right there. Suddenly that energy, yeah, it has that, like a surge almost, like, yeah. Yes? Well, I'm thinking about my meditations. That I get to a point where I'm thinking that, okay, now I'm too clear that I'm thinking that I need to back off because I don't have the, um, like I'm wondering if I'm, I'm sharp enough or if I'm really meditating because suddenly I'm really, really, I'm just very clear. And I don't, so I think of it when I'm talking that it's a, um, maybe it's a subtle laxity that that's what I've been worried about. So then I truly try to relax into it and then I kind of feel like I, maybe have missed it because I should have held on to it. But then when I go back into it, it, I'm just there. Ah, one of the marks of true calm abiding is it is almost completely effortless. And that's because there's a lot of bliss in it, which I purposely left out so that people don't start meditating for the bliss. But when you really get into calm abiding, it's very blissful. And the bliss sort of holds your attention there. You don't want to leave, so it takes no effort to stay there. Do you see what I mean? So the only problem at that point is you don't want to get attached to the bliss. And and you certainly don't want to start meditating in order to get to the bliss because it's really the clarity that is going to show us things. So it sounds to me like from what you're describing... Uh, no, that is a little bit different from his because you don't have a strategy for it. You just suddenly get there and then, am I correct in saying it sounds like it's too easy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it's too easy, that's good. <laughs> don't muck it up with, with thinking something's wrong. Enjoy the easiness of it. But if you start to fall out of it, don't go grabbing for clarity. Just go right back to building the stability. 
And you'll find clarity will just come of its own. You won't have to do anything to get it. You see? Yes? I find very often in the afternoon especially, um, especially having supper and lunch, it's just, it's just the entire afternoon is spent fighting laxity, both subtle and gross. Right. So that's all I do. <laughs> so, and what you want to do then is find your own rhythm in this practice and just do enough so you're not wasting your time on your pillow, but don't do enough so that you're exhausting the mind even more. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, driving an exhausted horse and you keep beating it and beating it and beating it, you know? And you trust the practice will work. Over time, it will become easier and easier and it'll take less and less effort to do that, to check and correct and check and correct, check and correct, you know? So you start out and be satisfied if you just do that a couple of times in a session. The other thing is, uh, in most traditions, uh, they say the uh, primo time to meditate is before dawn, and the hour is before dawn. The afternoon is probably the worst time. I know, for some circadian rhythm reason or something. So it's not that surprising. But you might want to try to make up for it in the pre-dawn hours, so particularly if you, someone's having trouble sleeping. Then, you know, don't be tossing around in your bed. If you're having trouble sleeping, get up and say, oh, golden opportunity. Here I can sit in the silence at the heart of the world and the whole world is hushed and quiet and everything is beautiful and clear and I can just blend in with that. Well, I do notice it. Sometimes if I can't sleep in the middle of the night, I can be extremely clear. Yeah. Much clearer. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you're on a group retreat here. But you might think about someday taking a solo retreat and organizing your sleep and waking schedule to suit your natural body rhythm so that you are basically sleeping all afternoon, getting up and meditating all night. You know, we, we get these instructions and they're very precise and they come from literally centuries of people practicing, observing, adjusting, practicing, observing, adjusting, and so forth. And they're passed down to us, and we have great gratitude for it. But each of us then finally has to take these and customize them to fit our own individual experience. Yeah. I always tell that famous story about Shanti Devi, who couldn't find an object to meditate on. His attention would not stay on any of the traditional objects. The breath, uh, a thought of the Buddha, a mantra, and none of those things. He could not do it. He struggled for, I don't know, years and years. And finally he found the horn of a yak. And for some reason, his mind could stay on the horn of a yak. And he became one of the great meditators of Tibetan Buddhism. So why the horn of a yak? I have no idea. But you may become known as the great night meditator. So they tell these stories about you. Yes. She achieved high states of samadhi because she gave up trying to practice in the afternoon but practiced all night. I don't know if, how Thomas is going to react to that. but <laughs> All right. Ten-minute P meditation, and we come back and apply these teachings to practice.
You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing meditation at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more meditation teachings and instructions.